podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday the 30th of June. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network. allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, keep your data safe. LibertyShield.com, EPLVPN is the code to use at checkout. You get 20% off. LibertyShield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, just the two games to get over. Uh, England beat Germany 2-0, and the English media have taken this to mean that they're the best team ever. They've now won the competition, if you weren't aware. Um, England, to be fair, deserved the win. They were the better team on the day. I don't think they played particularly brilliant, but they were better than a very bad Germany team. The Germans looked good for about 15 minutes and then seemed to retreat into themselves, seemed to almost invite England to go and try and beat them, uh, which they did. It should be no surprise that Germany were this poor. Um, They were poor against France. They had a great 65 minutes against Portugal and then ran out of steam. And then they were awful against the Hungarians. They were really, really poor yesterday. Uh, no real exceptions in that. I, I think to a man, Mats Hummels did really well for the first half and in the second half. I, I thought he just got tired and he looked really poor the last 20 minutes. Other than that, I think Germany were just man to man. They were poor. Um, imbalanced. The system didn't work. The shape didn't really work for them. They didn't get those wing backs involved enough. They didn't get them high enough up the field. The Cruz and Goretzka pairing, which I thought would work, it started well. And then whether under tactical instruction from Yaki Lowe or what, I don't know. But it became very, very run-of-the-mill, mundane. And the front three just didn't click. I don't know why he picked Timo Werner. You're not picking a player in form when you pick Werner. So what's the point of having him on the team on the pitch from the start, when you've got better options off the bench. England, to their credit, Jordan Pickford played very, very well. And Jordan Pickford's had a very good competition. He hasn't conceded, obviously, but he's made big saves in at least three of the four games. I thought Maguire played well. I thought Stones played well. Walker had a couple of shaky moments, but overall did quite well. Trippier and Shaw weren't really tested. Shaw, obviously, very good going forward in the later stages of the game. I thought Rice and Phillips struggled initially to cope with Germany in midfield. But then when they got to grips with it, I thought Calvin Phillips in particular stood out in the middle of the park. Rice had a bit of a quiet game. 
and I saw a certain journalist who I won't give credibility to uh, come out and say, if you don't rate him, you don't know what you're watching. Well, you're a West Ham fan, buddy. Uh, you think he's worth $100 million. I'm not sure you know what you're watching. He had an okay game. It was 6.5 out of 10. It wasn't spectacular. He didn't really have a whole lot of much to do. The one time Goretzka decided to make that run behind him, Rice was all at sea, pull, pulled him down and ended up getting booked. Germany, for some reason, didn't punish that. Germany didn't try and go at Declan Rice and force him to make decisions, force him into contact, force him into making challenges that could have led to fouls and yellow cards and ultimately what would have been a red card. Raheem Sterling played well, lively throughout, involved throughout. Saka didn't have a particularly good game. He struggled a little bit with the physicality of Rudiger. Harry Kane was dreadful. Now, all the, all the headlines today are about Harry Kane. The front pages are about Harry Kane. He was awful. He was, without question, the worst player on the pitch. But he scores a goal, six-yard header, and all is forgiven. All is forgotten. The three terrible games in the group stage are forgotten. The dreadful performance he put in for 85 minutes here is forgotten. And he's the hero. Yet Raheem Sterling, the one who's actually won you the game, the one who's got you through the group stage with his goals, is randomly overlooked. And I don't think it's random either, but he's overlooked. Uh, Jack Grealish, who came on, was involved in the first goal, almost killed the move, took too many touches, slowed the ball down, but eventually fed Shaw, who crossed for Sterling, who'd started the move. Grealish made the second with, a, I thought, an underhit cross for Kane, who had to kind of contort his body and get down to head it quite low. It was too high to volley, too low to head, but he managed to get down and get his head to it. Grealish is obviously centre stage as well. Southgate, centre stage. I heard the ITV commentator. I watched one of the highlights packages after watching the game just to see if the coverage was any different or if the, if the talking points were any different. And he said that the, the, the win over Germany was the crowning moment among Southgate's list of great accolades as England manager. I'm not sure what accolades he's talking about. Maybe finishing fourth at the World Cup. But, I mean, really? You lost the three good... You played two teams, two good teams, three times. And you lost each one of those games. You struggled against Colombia, who were the next best team you played, and went through on penalties. I'm not sure what accolades this man is talking about. Maybe winning some friendly matches uh, against big nations. But this is the worst German team in a decade easily. It shouldn't be. There's tremendous players in the squad, the likes of Joshua Kimmich, Leon Goretzka, Kai Havertz, Serge Gnabry, Leroy Sane, Robin Gosens, but for whatever reason, Lowe hasn't been able to sort it out. He hasn't been able to figure out what his best 11 is. We saw him pre-tournament bring back Thomas Muller and Mats Hummels, who'd been out of the mix for a couple of years, and immediately installed him in the team, which again just seems like a strange move to me. Hummels didn't have a good season for Dortmund. He wasn't in on merit. 
I think he was in as a thank you for what he'd done in the past. Same with Muller. Now, Muller did have a pretty decent season for Bayern, but still, I don't think Thomas Muller should have been starting. And, I mean, he missed a huge chance. And the thing is, as well as England played, and they were the better team over the 90 minutes, they weren't massively better than Germany, who played poorly. And they still needed Pickford to make two really good saves and Muller to miss a great chance. When you look back at the game, other than England's two goals, I mean, Maguire had a header in the first half. There was the Sterling shot in the first half. The Sterling shot's from 25 yards. It's not a big chance. The Maguire header's a very difficult one. Other than the two goals, I'm not... Oh, the, the Harry Kane moment at the end of the first half when he takes that abysmal first touch and Mats Hummels gets back and makes the, 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 the tackle. I'm not sure England created much of anything. They had five shots in the game, four on target. Germany had nine shots in the game, three on target. Germany had more possession. Both sides the same at the corners. England conceded more, committed more fouls. I don't know that you could make a real argument that England were particularly good yesterday. Germany were particularly poor. England were slightly better. But on they go. On they go. And at this point now... And we look at the, the draw in a minute. If they don't make the final, this is a huge failure from here. If they don't make the final, there's no excuse. In the semi-final, if they get there, they would play the winner of Denmark and the Czech Republic. Now, Denmark lost the first game in horrible circumstances. Lost to Belgium. Hammered Russia. Hammered Wales. Playing a very different style of football. Much more aggressive style. More progressive, more vertical. Faster tempo. More press orientated. But at the same time, you don't look at that Danish team and think, well, he'd get in the England team. Or he'd get in the England team. I think if you stood the teams up against each other, you'd, you'd take Casper Schmeichel over. Pickford, as, as good as Pickford has been in the competition, he's still Jordan Pickford. I'd take Andreas Christensen over Kyle Walker as a centre-back if we're playing back threes, which both teams are at the minute. Other than that, I'm not sure, I wouldn't take anybody else. That's it. Those two. And Christensen, it's only if you're playing a back three. If you're playing a, playing a back four, you wouldn't take him. So England should beat Denmark. They should beat the Czech Republic. They already did. Again, with the Czechs, there's nobody in that Czech team that you would say gets into the England team. Schick currently is in better form than Kane. And based on this tournament, you definitely take Schick. But he's still Harry Kane. Now, to get there, they'll have to beat Ukraine. Ukraine beat Sweden 2-1 last night in the late kickoff. They'd gone 1-0 up through Zinchenko. Sweden equalized through Emil Forsberg, deflected shot that went in. Forsberg would hit the post and the crossbar. Ukraine would hit the crossbar. Oh, no, the post. Ukraine hit the post. Um, Sweden were the better team through 90. And then their manager... Mr. Anderson decided to make 
some strange substitutions. He take, took off Isaac, and I, I could kind of understand it in a way, but at the same time, he still looked threatening. He still looked like a menace. He still looked like you had the option to ping the ball over the top to him. He would take off Kulisevsky uh, as well. And again, he's still looking threatening. He had a great opportunity at the end of the regulation time. I just felt like his substitutions killed the momentum. And then obviously they get the red card. Marcus Danielson sent off for dangerous play. It's a very, very harsh one because it's not a tackle. He's not attempting to have any interaction at all with Bezidin. None at all. But Bezidin closes him, presses him, and as he follows through from kicking the ball, his foot's straight out, his studs are up, his foot's about a foot off the ground, and it is a, it's probably more because it catches him around the knee. It's a really nasty-looking collision. But it's a collision. It's not a tackle. It's not an intentional act. But unfortunately for Marcus Danielson, under the rules of the game, it is a red card. It is endangering an opponent. Now, I would bet if um, Artem Bezidin had the opportunity to go back and redo that, he wouldn't have committed to trying to block the ball because it, it led to the end of his game. He'd come on as a sub and off he went again. We get to the 120th minute. It seemed like this game was destined for penalties. And then Zinchenko puts in what I think is the cross of the tournament so far. It's an absolutely sensational cross. And Artem Dovbik just appears in the box. Brilliant header. Puts it in the net. And that's it. Game over. Sweden out. Ukraine through. Very, very unfortunate for the Swedes. But you do have to give credit to Ukraine. How well said up they are, how well drilled they are, how organized they are, how resolute they are, how they don't let their heads drop when things go against them. They just keep going. And they kept chugging away and trying to win this game. Whereas you felt like Sweden at a certain point decided, we'll, we'll take our chances with penalties. Shevchenko's done a very good job with this Ukrainian team. As I said yesterday, they gave the Netherlands a really good game and they looked really impressive against North Macedonia. They played well again yesterday. Now, I think, like I say, I think Sweden were the better team through 90, but in the extra time period, Ukraine were the team for me that actually felt like they were trying to win the game, whereas Sweden looked like they were trying to hold out, especially then, obviously, when the red card happens. You're obviously going to try and hold out, but it's just a little bit unfortunate for the Swedes. It's a shame because... Um, Isaac and, and Kulisevsky. I was looking forward to seeing more of them together. But home they go, and the quarterfinals are set on Friday in the 5 p.m. kickoff. It is Switzerland versus Spain. The 8 p.m. is Belgium versus Italy. Um, Saturday, then, the 5 p.m. is the Czech Republic and Denmark, and the 8 p.m. is the Ukraine versus England. Now, this game will be played in Rome. It's the first time England will play outside of Wembley. So we'll see how that stands to them. I mean, they've basically been the hosts of this tournament as things stand. 
They've played four games, all at Wembley. If they get past the Ukraine, they'll play a semi-final and final, potentially, at Wembley. They have no excuse. England have no excuse. England are the best team by a considerable margin in that bottom half of the draw. The top half is much, much tougher. Italy, Belgium, Spain, when they decide to play, can play. Switzerland will be the outliers there. They'll be the big underdogs going into that game with Spain. But England will be strong favourites against Ukraine and then against whoever they get in the semi-finals should they get through. Now, if you look at things like XG and XG against, Italy and Denmark are the two best teams in the competition in terms of their expected goals and their expected goals against. Italy have been, I think, the best team in the tournament so far. They struggled against Austria, but they were really impressive through their group. England were not impressive through the group. Weren't hugely impressive yesterday either, even with the win over Germany. It's more about beating Germany rather than this collective of players. This group of players are not reflective of the great German teams that we've seen. It's unfortunate, but that's just what it is. But it is a big win for England. But like I say, it'll count for nothing if they don't go on and at least make the final. I think that's the minimum requirement now. You have to make that final. We don't know yet who the referees are going to be for the Czech Republic, Denmark or Ukraine-England game. But England's Michael Oliver has been handed the Switzerland versus Spain game. Um, I assume he's the only English referee that will get one of these games. I don't imagine that Anthony Taylor will be given uh, the Czech Republic versus Denmark. I certainly hope he won't anyway because he's not very good. But, yeah, that's the that's the situation with the Euros. No games today. No games tomorrow. Now we have to wait again. Uh, we'll have games on Friday. We'll have games on Saturday. Nothing Sunday or Monday. Then we're back Tuesday, Wednesday of next week with the two semifinals. And then the final will be Sunday week, the 11th of July, an 8pm kickoff. As things stand, as things stand, I think England should come through and I think it'll be Italy. If De Bruyne is out, that's a huge blow for Belgium. I think Italy will come through. I think Italy beats Spain or Switzerland. England should beat any of those three teams. If they don't, it's a massive disappointment. It'll be interesting to see what Southgate does in the next game. He's getting a lot of credit today. And look, he got his tactics right yesterday. Credit to him. Um, but at the same time, is he going to stick with the back three? Will he go back to a back four? Will he go 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3? Will Jack Grealish get a start? Will he bring back Phil Foden? Will he bring back Mason Mount? I was very surprised that Mason Mount didn't start, but I, my, my assumption is it's because he's only just back out of the, the quarantine protocols, so he hasn't been training with the team. I assume that's why he didn't start yesterday, why uh, Bakayo Saka got the, got the start instead. My assumption is that he'll be back in for the next game. I think we'll see 4-3-3. I think we'll see Mount in midfield with Phillips and Rice and then Foden with Sterling and Kane. Um, but 
to be fair to Jack Grealish, he did impress a little bit in his in his cameo, and obviously in the involvement, the two goals counts for something. Doesn't count for nearly as much as some people would like to make it out to be, but it counts for something. Um, for Germany, Lowe is gone. Flick is coming in. He's got big decisions to make in all areas of the field. He's got to make a decision over Manuel Nauer. I think it's time to just fully pass the baton to Ter Stegen. I know Ter Stegen had a bad season this past year, but for the five years previously, he had been the better of the two goalkeepers. As good as Nauer had come back to be, Ter Stegen was still better than him. He's got decisions to make at centre-back. He's got to find his right-back. Because right now, there's no standout right-back for Germany. If he wants to play a back three, Ridley Baku would be a great right-wing back opposite Gosens. But if he's playing in a back four, I don't think they're the full-backs you'd want. Maybe you go Lukas Kloistermann. In the middle, I mean, Rudiger's made a strong case in these Euros. I think... For Germany to be playing Antonio Rudiger shows, and for him to be their best centre-back, shows how far they've dipped. When you think of the great German teams and the great German defenders, Augenthaler, Guido Buchwald, Jürgen Kohler, Thomas Helmer, I mean, really, Antonio Rudiger just doesn't, doesn't stack up. Um, figure out your shape. Figure out your defence. Figure out what to do with Tony Cruz because I think it's time for Kimmich and, and Goretzka to bring that club partnership into the national team. You've got to get Gnabry and, and Sané on the wings and get them back in form. Figure out a way to get them back in form. And then figure out who's your 10, who's your 9. One of them is going to be Kai Havertz. I think Havertz as the 9 with uh, Verts of Florian Verts of Leverkusen as the 10 is the way to go. Now, that does mean no spot for Jamal Musiala, but that's just how I think it should line up. I mean, I just don't see in a 4-2-3-1, which is how I think he's going to play, I just don't see a spot for him, because I think Florian Wirtz is a better player right now. I think Kai Havertz represents their best option as a nine, because they don't have a number nine. Their best goal scorer is probably still Timo Werner, but he's not a number nine, never has been. And you can't play him in wide areas over Leroy Sané or Serge Gnabry because we know both of them are going to get back to being what they were. Kimmich and, and Goretzka should be a no-brainer. I think Gosens will remain the left-back, even as a, a full-back rather than a wing-back. I still think he, he'll do really well for them. But... The two centre-back spots and right-back are question marks. And I think the goalkeeper should be touched again. I just, I think the goalkeeper should be touched again. Um, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, there's a decent amount of news today. And then we've got some gossip. See you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, before the break, we're talking about Germany, obviously. And... Bayern Munich have obviously a big influence over the national team. Hansi Flick is about to take over. We know that Julian Nagelsmann is going to Bayern as manager. We know that David Upamecano is their big money signing for the summer. What we don't know is who else is going to be playing in that team. Now, we can assume certain players will be there. 
Kimmich will be there. Muller will be there. Lewandowski will be there. Gnabry will be there. Sané will be there. You'd imagine Lucas Hernandez is going to be starting. Alfonso Davies, maybe. Right back is a question mark. Right side centre back is probably now going to be Upa Meccano, unless Nagelsmann wants to play the back three. But then he's got a, a weird fit because you've still got Nicolas Sula. Now he's out of contract, I think, in two years. A lot of talk that he could go. Hassan Salahamazic has not had any success in negotiating an extension. I don't think, as things stand, Upa Meccano on the right of a back three really works. Didn't really work when he was played there for, for Leipzig. But if you can if you can deal with a year or so of him making some mistakes, he might fit really well there. If he if not, you have to play him in the centre. I don't think Sula on the right of the three is ideal, but he, he might be better there in the short term. And if he goes, maybe Pavard becomes that right sided centre back. They'd still need a right wing back. But the questions are Who's going to be the backup winger? Because it looks like Kingsley Coleman is trying to force his way out. And who's going to partner Kimmich in midfield? Because it doesn't look like Leon Goretzka has any real intention of signing a new contract at this moment. Again, Salahamazic has tried to extend Coleman and Goretzka. But both of them have had a look at Leroy Sané's contract. When he was brought in, Bayern basically blew up their the pay structure to give him a huge contract went against what they'd normally do. And I think those two in particular have had a look and thought, hang on a second. Like we're, we've been here now a while. We've contributed to a lot of success. Why is he walking in and getting all this money? And we're over here earning between us half what he's currently getting. So Byron, are in a difficult situation because you know Gnabry is going to come up for renewal in a couple in a year or so. Kimmich will come up as well, and they're both going to look at the situation, and think, right, well, that's that's the starting point. So if they go and say to Goretzka, yeah, you can have that kind of money, Coleman. You're you're not a starter, but we'll put you on a you know comparable figure. Well, Gnabry's going to want exactly the same as San, if not more. Kimmich will want probably more. He's the best player at the club, probably the best German player right now. If it's not him, it's Gnabry on form. Um, Bayern are going to find that that team gets really, really expensive. So there's a lot of talk that Sula, Goretzka and Coleman could all leave this summer. Sula's been linked heavily with Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel's believed to be a big fan. Goretzka's been linked to Liverpool and today to Manchester United. And Kingsley Coleman has been linked to both as well. Now, it looks like United are going to get the Sancho thing done. We'll get to that in a sec. So that would rule them out of the Kingsley Coleman race. Now, Liverpool have been linked with Coleman and rumours were and reports were that they put in a bid. I don't believe that to be true. I think his I think his injury issues would probably rule out Liverpool from going for him. Given the kind of money he'd want, I don't think Liverpool would commit it to, to a player like him with those injuries. The difficulty is if he didn't have those injuries, there's not a hope in hell he wouldn't be sticking around at, at Bayern on a contract to match Sané and eventually Nabry. I think they just do it automatically because he, he is so gifted. He's such a good player. We saw him when he came on for France against uh, Switzerland the other day, the difference he made in that game. 
Goretzka is a really interesting one. Liverpool thought they had him signed when he was leaving Schalke on a free. They thought they had that done. At the last minute, he did a U-turn and he went to Bayern. So you'd imagine they still hold interest in him. It's understandable, I think, if a player, if a German player turns in an English club to go to Bayern, I think that's always understandable. If he turned them down to go to like PSG or something, I think that would have been the end of any interest, as was the case with Julian Draxler. But I think for Goretzka, Liverpool would still have strong interest. Uh, I don't know how strong the interest in Coleman would be. Maybe they just kicked the tires on it. I'd be surprised if they signed Kingsley Coleman. But I would not be surprised if they went in for Leon Goretzka. Um, United look like they're inching, inching ever closer to some sort of an agreement for Jadon Sancho. Conflicting reports coming out. Uh, you can tell the spoofers trying to get ahead of the game by coming out and saying, oh, it's agreed. And now it's just about payment structure and add-on. They haven't agreed a fee yet. They haven't agreed to pay the fee yet. So we'll wait for that. But it is it, it looks like it is going to happen. The add-ons, they don't seem to be negotiable. I, I, maybe, maybe Dortmund will come down $5 million on the initial price, but I think they'll want it then in the add-ons. So if they don't get $85 million and 15 in add-ons, I think they're going to want 80 and $20 million in add-ons. Um, and then you just sorted the payment structure. Now, the reports initially were that Dortmund wanted like half up front. Whether United can do that or not, I don't know. So I think there's still probably another week or two of this to run and run. It's the longest running transfer saga that I can remember. And the, the hilarious part is United have n- no competition for him. Nobody else has gone in for him because the wage demands are ludicrous. 350,000 a week for a 21-year-old who's never played a professional game in England before. Uh, as as brilliant as I think Sancho is, that is that's criminal. It's absolutely criminal. Um when there's more on that we'll talk about it more. Everton are close to confirming the appointment of Rafa Benitez as a successor to Carlo Ancelotti after he agreed a 3-year contract. Uh, Rafa will not lead, will not need a work permit as he has, is a resident in the UK. Um, Everton fans obviously not very happy with this decision. I think it's a very good appointment. I went over why yesterday. And I think if you look at the squad, I think it's well set up for how Rafa will want to play. I don't think they'll need too much. Now, word is that the owner is going to back Rafa, is happy to back him, is willing to back him. I think if we look at the squad, and remember, Rafa wants to play 4-2-3-1. That is his his baby. He loves 4-2-3-1. I'm not a big fan of Pickford, but Pickford is decent with his feet. He's quick off his line. He's an agile goalkeeper. I think he'll go with Pickford, at least to begin with. He tends to like one more defensive fullback and one more attacking fullback. I think Mason Holgate will be his right back and Luca Dini will be his left back with Ben Godfrey and either Yerry Mina, if he can stay fit. The key for Mina is fitness. If not him, Michael Keane will come in. I'd imagine he sticks with the defensive options he's got. He might look to bring in a couple of squad options. Um, I think we could see maybe John Joe Kenny leave. I think Coleman will stick around. 
I think he'll keep hold of uh, Nkunku. I think we might see them go and buy one more centre-back uh, to develop, or, or a really experienced one to come in and be a mentor. Someone who's not going to start every game, but can play in important games, or someone that they'll develop long-term, uh, who, again, won't be an immediate starter. In midfield, I think he's going to really like the pairing of Alan and Decore. He loves Alan. He had him before. Um, I think he'll he'll very much like Tom Davies. I don't know that he'll have a whole bunch of time for Andre Gomes. I don't know if he'll have a whole bunch of time for Gilfie. He might use Gilfie as his 10 to begin with. But I think that's one position he'll target to, to upgrade. Richarlison he will love. A wide player with height who works really hard and will get him some goals. He will love Richarlison. It wouldn't surprise me if initially Alex Awobi starts on the right wing. And he'll adore Calvert-Lewin. He will absolutely adore Calvert-Lewin. I think he'll want to keep Moise Keane. It's just a matter of whether Keane's agents can force him out of the club. Uh, I think Hamas can say goodbye. I think Delph will be a useful squad player under Rafa. But looking at the team, I think the immediate needs are right wing and a number 10. I think that's what he'll target to begin with. I could be wrong. He, and as like I said, I think he could like Alex Awobi as a, as a right-sided midfielder. When you look at his Liverpool team, Probably the best version of it had Albert Riera on one wing and Dirk Kite on the other. Hard workers, physical, could get goals, but you know would offer an awful lot even if they weren't scoring. I think that's Richarlison and Awobi can offer can can take those boxes. Awobi needs to up his goal output, but I think that's what he may go with. But I think he'll target a ten. I do think there'll be a right wing excuse me, a right winger, if not immediately, then potentially in January. But it's not a bad Everton squad. Like, it does need to be respected. There's there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of potential there. Obviously, they, they sold off a bunch of their potential because that number 10 role would be perfect for Vlasic. Um, that right wing role, I mean, wouldn't be perfect, but Adam Ola Luckman would be a really nice fit there. Henry Onyakura would be a nice option to have off the bench. But they got rid of all of them to keep Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, and Andre Gomes and people of, and Theo, Theo Walcott, uh, Cenk Tusen. They kept those guys, sold off all the talented young players. Uh, good decisions, Everton, good decisions. Um, Leicester City have announced the signing of Patson Daka from RB Salzburg, a deal worth £22 million. He scored 27 goals in 28 games last season uh, to help Salzburg win the fourth successive Austrian league title. Was the Austrian Bundesliga's player of the season. Very talented. Still quite raw. Quite limited. Needs to improve his all-round game. But he's going to a club with a manager who's got a good track record at developing strikers. um, With an experienced quality player in Jamie Vardy with a coming into his prime Ian Acho. 
So he's not going to have the pressure of immediately having to go in and start and get goals. I'd imagine he'll be used off the bench quite a lot in his first season with the view that he'll replace Vardy maybe in a year. could be two years. But it's a five-year contract, so they've got plenty of runway to go. Weirdly, that this weird that this one has been announced and the Bubakari Samari one hasn't. Um, the Samari one apparently has been done for about a month now, and there's still no word from Leicester on on that deal. Now you'd assume it'll still get done, but they're leaving themselves in a situation unless he has signed the contract. They are leaving themselves in a situation where somebody can come in and outbid them. Um, maybe they're waiting to see what develops with James Madison or with Yuri Tielemans, but get him in the door. Like get that signed, get it done. Really good business from from Leicester so far uh, with Daka and Sumari. Looks like they've got the pair of them for about forty five million. Wouldn't imagine that'll be the the last of their business. Um, believe Ryan Bertrand has gone there as well. Isn't that right? Ryan Bertrand has agreed. Yeah, I think Ryan Bertrand has agreed to go there. I could be wrong. I know they've been linked to a couple of other left-backs, but I think Ryan Bertrand has agreed to go there. Be a good option as a as a free transfer. Come in, rotational player. Won't play every game, but can play full-back or wing-back. Will suit Brendan's want to flex between the back three and the back four. Um, at 31... Yeah, you can't really go 32 by the time the season starts. You can't really go wrong with, with Ryan Burton on a short-term two-year contract on a free. Wouldn't imagine the money will be enormous either. Uh, Spurs look like their 70-day search for a manager, 70 days, is about to come to an end. Nuno Espirito Santo seems to be on the verge of taking that job. Uh, maybe this explains why he turned his back on Crystal Palace at the last moment. I don't think this is a particularly inspiring appointment. Um, I mean, he, he he was pushed out the door at Wolves because they'd hit a wall. Surely you've got to be more ambitious than that. Now, it may just be that this is what they can get right now. He likely won't be overly demanding in terms of recruitment because there's a very good squad there. And it is a squad that suits how he wants to play. You know, he'll he'll want, I think, to go 3-4-3. He'll have Lloris. He's past his best. But he's a similar style of goalkeeper to Rui Patricio. Matt Doherty and Aurier are are, are wing-backs, not full-backs, especially Doherty. Now, Aurier still wants out, apparently, but he might stick around for a year. Uh, But those two as right-wing-backs... You've obviously got uh, Regulon and Cessnion as left-wing-backs. As centre-backs, you've got a number of options. You've got Toby Alderweireld, who'll almost certainly be one starter. Davinson Sanchez, who I think will be a starter under Nuno. Joe Roden, Eric Dyer, Jaffa Tanganga, Ben Davies. Maybe Cameron Carter-Vickers gets a look-in. Long overdue look-in. I don't know how good he's going to be. He might not be any good at all. Um, But Maybe give them an opportunity. So they've got plenty of options at centre-back. Not all brilliant, but we saw Nuno cobble together a solid defence from Connor Cody, Romain Sice, and Willie Bolly, one of whom's a bad centre-back and the other two were mediocre midfielders playing out of position. 
uh, and only one of them can actually defend. Um, in central midfield, I think he, he'll love Heusberg. I think he'll quite like Winks. Dyer can play there if you're desperate. Lacelso obviously. And Dumbelli, obviously. It's good options. It's a strong group of midfielders. Musa Sissoko is another one. And then in the front three, we, the Kane question remains out there. So wait and see on that one. But then you've got Bergvine, Delhi, Lucas Mora, and Youngman Son, and Eric Lamella. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a really strong squad. It really is a strong squad. You've got young Jack Clark they can bring in and maybe give some, some minutes to as well. They don't need a whole bunch. They really don't need a whole bunch. And Nuno will get the most out of players. But he's a short-term manager, and you do feel like his style of play puts a limit on what a team can achieve. But Spurs just need to get someone in. And that's the be-all and end-all of it, is that Spurs just need to get someone in the door. Somebody has to be manager very, very soon. Then you address the Kane issue. And look, if Kane is going, you'll have an awful lot of money to spend. I've said before, if I was Spurs, if, if I was Spurs, I would go to City and say, right, you don't want to pay 150 million in cash. Let's do some horse trading and let's get some of their players in. City's players are better than your players. Let's get some of them in. Raheem Sterling might not love the idea of a move, but he might be open to it. You sell him on the fact he gets to move back to London. He's going to be a star for a big London club. Sterling on the right of the front three. Son on the left of the front three. The number nine position is still open and you still have to go and buy someone. You could try Delhi there. I think his skill set would fit as a false nine really well. Also allows you to go four, uh, three, four, one, two in certain games or in-game. You, you still want to bring in a striker into the club so you have one because if Kane goes, there isn't another one. They don't own Carlos Vinicius and Troy Parrott's too young at this point. But you can go and buy a cheaper striker who's not going to cost you 50, 60 million. But if you can get Sterling, and I know he hasn't had a good Euros, but I still think America Laporte's a tremendous defender. You get Laporte... All of a sudden, I think Pedro Porro would be a really good fit as well as a right wing back. Great season last year for Sporting. That deal I don't think is done. So maybe you can force City's hand. You get him. Now you've got Porro, Endembele, Heusberg, Regulon across your midfield. Sterling, Delhi, Son as a front three. Toby and Laporte as two thirds of your back three. It's not bad. You'd st- and you'd still be getting cash from City. Wouldn't be a huge amount, 20, 30 million. But that could get you Joachim Anderson. And there's your back three completed. Now you've got Larice, Anderson, Toby, Laporte, Poro, Endembele, Heusberg, Regulon, Sterling, Son. Sterling, Ali, Son. That's not a bad team. That really isn't a bad team. You have a load of depth. You can still sell on. Like I, I would be pushing Eric Dyer out the door as quickly as possible, but you can sell him, you can sell Sissoko, you can sell 
uh, REA, and you can bring in money that can then allow you to go and buy some more quality depth. Go and get that backup striker that you want. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom for Spurs just because Kane goes. It really doesn't. You can be aggressive. Go and take that deal to City. Now, the rumor is that Daniel Levy just wants cash. Just wants the cash. Now, if I'm a Spurs fan, that makes me nervous. Because either option A, it doesn't all get reinvested in the team. Some of it goes into into the owner's pockets, which is bad. Or option B, they do what they did with the Garrett Bale money, spend most of it badly, and uh, you end up declining a little bit, or a lot, depending on them. Um, on other things, but yeah, I mean, for me, I I think for Spurs, they just need to be aggressive. If if Kane wants to go, maybe it's time to let him go. But go and let him go on your terms. Go and get the deal you want for him. Go and get the deal that suits you, that improves you. Because I'm not being funny. If you've got Sterling and Laporte, you're better off than if you've just got Harry Kane. You just are. One of them's a top-end defender. One of them's a top-end attacker who's younger than the top-end striker that you're leaving, that you're losing. I would rather have Raheem Sterling, in all honesty, than Harry Kane. Because I think Raheem Sterling turns up more often in big games. He's more durable. He hasn't really had any major injury problems. He's a year younger. He's actually 18 months younger than Kane. Like, remember, Harry Kane's 28 this summer. Raheem doesn't turn 27 until December. And looking back over, taking this season out, right? This season, Raheem had a bad year and Kane had a great year. But 17-18, Harry Kane got 41 goals as a striker. But Raheem got 23 as a winger. Um... 18-19, Harry Kane got 24 as a striker. Raheem got 25 as a winger. Now, admittedly, he played more games, but that's important as well, being available. And again, 19-20, Kane scores 24, Raheem gets 31, and again, he plays more games. But being available is a massive, massive part of being a top-class footballer. Raheem Sterling is fit all the time. His last six years, 40, sorry, his last seven years, 52, 47, 47, 46, 51, 52, and 49 games. He's played 421 senior career games for Liverpool and, and uh, Manchester City. Harry Kane has played 401 games in his career, but... 65 of them were in the lower leagues. And you look at his last seven, 51, 50, 38, 48, 40, 34, 39. He's just not always available. He's injured for parts of most seasons. This season is only the second time in his career he played 35 or more Sorry, the third time in his career he played 35 or more Premier League games. He's played 30 or less three times. 
Raheem is is never injured. Never injured. From 13-14 onwards, Raheem is just always fit. And even the previous season, he played 36 games in all competitions as a squad player. But Sterling, I, I just think if you can get him in and get Americ Laporte, I think you're better off than you would be with just Harry Kane. Spurs need to act soon, though. Need to get that manager in. Right, we'll wrap up with the gossip. Uh, Aston Villa are hopeful of tying Jack Grealish down to a new £150,000 a week contract amid interest from Manchester City. Now, I wouldn't imagine money like that is going to sway him if he has his heart set on City because they will be offering him even more. Grealish did sign a long-term contract last summer. So, for Villa, they don't need to offer him a contract. This is Villa saying to him, we're fully committed to you. This is clever from Villa. This is clever. This is a big gesture from Villa. They signed him to a big contract last summer. Now they're offering an even bigger one. It's clever. Uh, Juventus expect Cristiano Ronaldo to make a decision on his future soon, following Portugal's elimination from Euro 2020. The five-time Ballon d'Or winner's contract Runs until 2022. I think he wants to leave, if I'm honest. And I think they want him to leave. Because he's earning ridiculous money and he hasn't helped them accomplish what what he was brought to do. Um, he's not going to be a player that can single-handedly win you a Champions League anymore. He's just not that player anymore. Um, if you put him in a, a team surrounded by great players, he'll score a lot of goals. If you expect him to be a great player, you're going to end up being disappointed. Manchester United sent a scout to watch France and Juventus midfielder Adrian Rabiot as the world champions lost their Euro 2020 last 16 encounter with Switzerland. Right. So Rabiot is a very good player. The problem with Rabiot is if you buy him, you inherit his mother, who is an absolute nightmare, who decided after the game uh, against Switzerland to go around blaming the other players. So she was critical of Pogba. She was critical of Mbappe. She had words with Mbappe's family. Um, she's known to cause trouble. She caused countless amounts of trouble, or endless amounts of trouble, I should say, uh, when Rabio was at PSG. I I think um, Adrian Rabio is a fantastic player. I wouldn't touch him because his mother's an absolute nightmare. If you're signing him, you have to borrow her from being anywhere near the club. You have to. And I don't think you'll sign in that in, in those circumstances. Uh, Juventus have entered the race to sign Granite Jacket. No, they haven't. Let's move on. Uh, English midfielder Emil Smith-Rowe has a verbal agreement to sign a new contract with Arsenal. Aston Villa have seen at least two offers turned down. Uh, no, they've seen two offers. Not at least two. Two. Uh, and I don't for one second believe he has a verbal agreement to sign a new contract. Because if he had a verbal agreement, why wouldn't it be signed? Why wouldn't it be signed? If there's a verbal agreement there, it will be signed. Drivel from the Express. Uh, Crystal Palace, Southampton and Norwich City are eyeing a deal for Borussia Dortmund's 29-year-old Danish midfielder Thomas Delaney, whose contract runs out in 2022. Wouldn't be a huge fan of Delaney, but for any of those clubs, I think he's a good signing. He's a, I mean, he's a good player. Like, it's not that he's a bad player or anything like that, but 
He's got limitations to his game. If you want a hard-working, experienced midfielder who's got decent ball retention, Thomas Delaney is a clever option. Um, I think Dortmund would be quite happy to get some cash in for him as well. I think Southampton's the best destination for him of those three. I think he fits with Ralph better better than he would uh, with Vieira. And also, I have I have concerns over Palace and Norwich ahead of next season. Palace, because the squad needs so much turnover, and I'm not hugely fond of Vieira, the manager. Norwich, because I just don't know that they're going to spend enough money uh, to give themselves a real chance, though I do like their manager. English midfielder Jack Harrison is expected to complete a permanent move to Leeds United this week, having been on loan with them from Manchester City for three seasons. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense for all involved. He clearly likes it there. He's done very well for them. They're clearly very fond of him. And City have no need for him, but City will make a nice, tidy little bit of money on him and um, and send him on his way. So I think it, it works for everybody. Uh, Leeds are also set to complete the signing of Junior Firpo after edging out several Premier League and Serie A clubs to land the former Spain Under-21 international. Um, very talented player. His time at Barca has not gone well. Largely just because they have Jordi Alba, so he hasn't had the opportunities. But I do like him. I think he's a good, a good solid player. Really exciting going forward when he's in full flow. I think he'll be a good addition to Leeds. Um, let's just hope he doesn't have the injury problems that they're signing some last summer experienced. Uh, Manchester United have turned their attention away from Barcelona forward Usman Dembele after he suffered an injury setback at Euro 2020. I think he was only ever third choice. I think it's been Sancho, Coleman and him. Uh, maybe Sancho, him and Coleman. Either way, Sancho's their top target. I think they're going to get Sancho. Um, but we just have to wait and see. Um, Arsenal are expected to submit an official bid for Aaron Ramsdale after he returns from Euro 2020 duty with England. I mean, you're just doubling down on being foolish. He's been the worst goalkeeper in the league for the last two seasons. How on earth have you looked at him and thought, yeah, he's the guy to get us back in the top four. Yeah, well done. Uh, Liverpool are in advanced talks to sign Otavio from Porto. No, they're not. Uh, Aston Villa are interested in signing Manchester United centre-back Axel Tunzebi for the 2021 season. Uh, they want to bring him in on loan. He's had two previous loan spells there before. Makes sense. Makes sense. They could do with another centre-back. I think they need a starter, though. Um, I mean, Mings is just just so poor. Uh, Villa are also keen on Tammy Abraham, whose £40 million price tag will be too expensive for West Ham. Yeah, I mean, I think Tammy's the perfect signing for Villa. I think a 4-2-3-1 where you've got McGinn and Douglas Louise as you're sitting to. You can play Ollie Watkins off the right, a narrow right-hand side. Grealish roaming on the... Sorry, Grealish as the 10 and Buendia roaming off the left. Or you can go Buendia off the right and again play him narrow and play Watkins off the left and again Grealish is your 10 with Tammy as the 9. That's very, very potent. That's two goal scorers and two creators. And I think Watkins, as one of the three, will give you great back post presence, late runner into the box, 
pace and power out wide. You've also, if you play that narrow right-hand side, you start opening that channel up for Maddie Cash, which I think you'll see more of him this season going forward. I think Tammy makes all the sense for Villa. And unlike some, I know they don't need to sell Jack Grealish to afford him because they've got loads of money, loads of money behind them. They've spent $250 million since coming back up to the Premier League. They're not shy of a bob or two. It rains tenors when their their owners walk down the street. Uh, Newcastle owner Mike Ashley is reluctant to pay a fee for players over the age of 27, which has resulted in Newcastle's talks with Southampton over Mario Lamina, who is 28 in September, hitting a stumbling block. He'll get criticised for this, but I think it makes sense because a club like Newcastle, it's got to be buy, develop and sell. Buy, develop and sell. And build yourself that way. Bring in a player for 15 million, develop him, sell him for 30, go and buy two more for 15. Develop them and hope that you continue to have success that way. I think that's Newcastle's best way of operating because Ashley is not going to be willing to put huge amounts of money in. And then to be fair to him, he doesn't have the type of money that, you know, Abramovich or, or Mansoor has. He's a wealthy, wealthy man, of course, but. He wants to run the club on a budget, and it, that's his right. I mean, I, I think he's a terrible owner. It's, it's got nothing to do with his transfer policy. Um, I just think he's a bad owner. I, I think this, the stuff he's done regarding St. James's Park, I think the way he's treated managers, uh, the nonsense over contracts with players, the way he's behaved towards the fans, I think all of that just, just wraps up a, a bow around a man who shouldn't be owning a Premier League club because... He just doesn't have the desire to own a Premier League club. I think he'd be fine if he owned, I don't know, like, if he owned a championship squad and he was happy for it to just be mid-table and middle along, he'd be fine like that, but not a Premier League club. Uh, Swansea right back, Connor Roberts, has emerged as a target for Burnley. The 25-year-old Wales international has just one year left on his contract. Yeah, I mean... He he's a good player. Um five eight though, he's a little bit short for a Deich fullback. Deich normally likes them that little bit bigger. Let's have a look at the current Burnley fullbacks. So of course there are there's the great Eric Peters. If you're not a fan of Eric Peters, oh well, you're probably doing things right. Eric Peters is six foot, walks at a flat six. That's um it's a long man. Charlie Taylor's 5'10", Matty Loughton, 5'11", Phil Bardsley, 5'11". Now, Taylor's the smallest of them, but Taylor's fairly well built. I wonder. Roberts opposite Taylor would be good, though. It really would be good, because... Both of them are good going forward, and both of them are solid defensively. I think Burnley are going to have an interesting summer, because it does look like Tarkowski is going to move on, so they'll probably want another centre-back uh, in the door, having um, having already signed one. I think they'll want another one in after Collins. Ideally, they probably need another one in, one, another one in even without Collins, because I wouldn't be a huge fan of Kevin Long or Jimmy Dunn, but we'll wait and see. 
anyway, that's it. That's the show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, do tell your friends. Uh, spread the good word. I will be back on Twitter soon. I don't know how, but I will find a way. Uh, the the Twitter people will not keep me off there. Simple as that. Radio. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.